That song, Waymaker, reminded me of a scripture I wanted to read. Psalm 121 says, I will lift up my eyes to the mountains from where shall my help come. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither sleep nor slumber. He's a way maker, and it's an amazing truth that he's always working on our behalf. Um, it's a truth to relish in as a Christian because it's his promise, his covenant promise to you that he will never fail. He will be faithful. He will always do what he said he will do. So I love that. It's good truth. If you're joining us for the first time, we've been going through a study on the spiritual gifts. We're starting to near the end, believe it or not. This morning, we're going to cover the two gifts that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 10, especially in operation in the early church, that of the working of miracles and gifts of healing. Next week, the plan is to teach on the gift of prophecy, what that was. And then the third week, to finish out the month almost, is I want to do a quick study on are all these gifts still in operation in the church today? It's a big debate within the church. I'm excited to talk about it and share with you where I stand. Uh, I think there's a lot of relevance to that, that question in particular. Before we get started, if you would, let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we want to just pause and ask, uh, as we've sought this morning um, to pour ourselves out, Father, in worship. Father, our, our prayer now is that you would fill us back up with your word, with your presence. Father, help us to feed on it. Help us to see you in it. Father, as our mission statement says, we want to be gospel-centered. We want to be transformational in our community. And we want to have visible and verbal faith, Father. This is the time for us to be all that. We want to be transformed by your gospel. We want to meet you. We don't just want to look for facts or knowledge, Father. We want to look for Christ in the Scriptures and where you are. Father, we pray that through this community, this gathering right now, that you would transform us both in our worship, in our study, but also in our fellowship afterward. And Father, as we've had Mark tell us the many opportunities to serve, especially tonight with the military ministry, help us to have visible faith. Help us to put boots on the ground, Father, to have the rubber meet the road in this faith we profess. We love you. Thank you for coming, speaking truth to us, but serving us, Father, and uh, taking note, especially as we're going to see, of the miserable state that we were in. You came in your mercy and your great love for us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So the spiritual gifts, God has given many of them. We've been looking at them one by one. The Spirit gives to the church diverse gifts. Not everyone's going to have the same gift, and that's by design. And God wants us in the church to be exercising those gifts to build each other up. The two we're going to look at today are definitely within the miraculous grouping of gifts that was given at least to the early church. And they were prominent in the ministry of Christ Himself, that of the working of miracles, and healing. Let's look at it in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 8. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by, one, by the one Spirit, 
to another the working of miracles. Um, did I skip one? Okay. To the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues and the interpretation of tongues. So, what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to flip the order in our study as far as how they're presented in this passage. The affecting of miracles is said first, and then the working of miracles I'm going, or the affecting of healing, I'm sorry, and then the working of miracles said, I'm going to study the affecting of miracles first so that we can distinguish why are they not the same thing. A healing is definitely a miracle, but uh, we're going to separate it out and see why. We do that. So we're going to cover 1 Corinthians 12, 10, the affecting of miracles and what this gift is. Now, this is an important gift uh, to discuss simply because of what I talked about last week. If you were here, we established the Christian worldview is important to consider when we're talking about spiritual gifts because we live in a culture that is very materialistic and very anti-supernatural. And so these kind of statements tend to rub that kind of person raw. However, if there is a God, um, any miracle is possible. So we're going to look at this. The word miracle here in the Greek is dunamis. We get our word dynamite from it. Okay, And literally it's just power. But it, here it's in the plural, which means this. There are multiple avenues of miracles. There's different kinds of miracles, acts of power that God has put on display. Um, I want to be very precise in how we define a miracle. So here's how I'm going to define it if you're taking notes, and then I'm going to tell you why we need to be precise in our definition. So simply defined, we can say that a miracle is a special act of God that interrupts the natural course of events or working of nature. It's a special act of God that interrupts the natural course of events or working of nature. In a strong sense, a miracle is defined as an event that's outside of nature's power. One atheist actually said it very well. He, he later became a deist. He saw atheism, atheism as bankrupt. His name was Anthony Flew. Here's how, how he defined a miracle. He said, a miracle is something which would never have happened had nature, as it were, been left to its own devices. That's a good definition. So a miracle is, is a superseding of the physical laws that God has set up to run the universe. It's not necessarily a violation of them, but it is an overriding of them. We, uh, we have PJs who've told me about their stories getting to jump out of airplanes and stuff like that with parachutes. That's superseding the law of nature, right? You strap on a, a parachute and you're counteracting gravity. Someone who designs an engine... They design an engine with certain laws to function a certain way, but that designer can interrupt those laws and tinker with it, right? That's the idea. They supersede. Now, why do we need to be precise in the definition of miracles? Well, one, because we live in an anti-supernatural age that doesn't believe in them. So we need to be precise about what it is we're talking about. In other words, praying for a parking spot at the front of Walmart and then driving in there and finding, oh, there's a parking spot right there. What's a miracle? No, that's not a miracle. My, my girls like to watch a show. Maybe your kids watch it. Um, it's called Animal Miracles. And it's simply stories of these animals, whether they're domesticated or wild, who were found hurt, injured, 
whatever, and someone cares for them, nurtures them back to health, they survive and, and start thriving, and it's a miracle, and my daughters are able to pick up, and every time they watch it, they say, Dad, that's not really a miracle, is it? Nope, that's not a miracle. But we use that term so broadly and so loosely, we actually lose the significance and apologetic value of what a miracle really is. Miracles are rare by definition. That's what makes it a miracle. Christians have gotten in trouble by using it loosely or using it to explain things they simply don't understand. There's a Latin phrase that Isaac Newton, great Isaac Newton, who discovered gravity, Newton's mechanics, all these things. He used this phrase, deus ex machina. Maybe you've heard it. It literally means God out of the machine. And what he did as he was developing his Newtonian mechanics, when he would get to a problem with the, the um, traveling of the stars or whatever that he couldn't explain, he would say this, well, it's just God did it. Pull God out of the machine and play the God card. The problem with that was, once science grew and came to understand what exactly was going on in the heavens, they would say, oh, that's not God, it's this. You see the problem. Oh, well, there's no need for God anymore, right? So by playing the deus ex machina card, God out of the machine, you actually argue God away as we learn more. However, the Christian church still maintains God is supernatural. He is above and beyond outside of the natural realm. If creation can be shown to be true, there's the greatest proof of miracle we have. In fact, it can be shown to be true. Uh, Einstein himself hated his own conclusion. The theory of general relativity is probably the greatest tested scientific theory that, that we have. In fact, it's been proven accurate all the way to the ninth decimal point. But what that theory proved for science is that space, time, and matter all had a beginning. Now, Einstein, this is important because Einstein himself was a pantheist. He believed matter just existed eternally, and he hated the implications that his own theory said. If everything began to exist, something had to cause it to exist, and that something has to be beyond the natural realm that we know. So if you've studied this at all, you know Einstein, to change those implications, literally divided by zero in his equation, an elementary math mistake, except he did it intentionally to Changed the implications. A Russian mathematician called him out on it. He confessed what he did. I did it because I don't like what my theory says. It points to a deity. But he later came to say that was the biggest blunder of my entire career. I wish I'd never done it. If it points to a God, it points to a God. We don't have to play the deus ex machina card, right? It points to a God. Whether you like it or not. Well, if God exists, miracles are possible. Literally, to explain away miracles, you have to disprove the existence of God, which has become something incredibly difficult for atheists to do, the more they know. One, one agnostic, Robert Jastrow, who is the former head of NASA, said this. I loved this quote in seminary. He was an agnostic. But he says, you know, we scientists have been scaling this mountain of reason in scientific discovery all these years, 
maintaining our atheism, maintaining our agnosticism. We've finally gotten up to the peak of this mountain in our discoveries. And what did we find sitting at the top? A band of theologians who've been sitting there all along. That's an agnostic saying it. What they've discovered in science has only proven what the Bible has been saying all along as far as creation, beginning, all these things. So if God exists, miracles are no big deal. Raising the dead is not a big deal for a God who spoke everything into existence from nothing. So what are miracles? There's three different words used in the Bible to describe a miracle. Signs, wonders, and power. Sometimes they're all used together in one verse. For instance, if you want to turn to Hebrews chapter 2, you can see this. Signs, wonders, and power used in one verse. And we're going to talk about each one to learn. In Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 3, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It, this salvation, was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. That would be the apostles. While God also bore witness to this message by signs, wonders, and various miracles. If you have the ESV, it says miracles. The word is power. It's dunamis. So signs, wonders, and power. How did God attest to the message of salvation, to the gospel? He attested to it by signs, wonders, and power. So let's look at these words individually, try and gain an understanding of what a miracle is biblically. A sign in the Old Testament, for instance, uh, the word could refer to such things as war. It referred to the Sabbath. It could refer to circumcision. But most often it carried theological significance to it. It was something... A sign was something that was appointed by God with a special message assigned to it. That's what a sign was. For instance, in Exodus chapter 3 and 4, when God calls Moses to go back to the land of Egypt. In fact, that whole Exodus account is a tremendous display of what signs were. There's many of them. But in Exodus 3.12, God tells Moses this, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you to them, Moses. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you will serve me on this mountain. There's the sign in Exodus 4, 1-9. through Basically, Moses says, but God, who am I? How will the people know that you've actually sent me? So God says, here's two more signs. Moses, see that staff in your hand? Throw it down. He throws it down and it turns into what? Serpent. He says, now put your hand in your cloak. What's, what happened? Turned leprous. And God says this, Uh, those are both signs uh, that that God will give. The signs given by God serve most often, especially in this case, to confirm the one whom He's sending, right? Moses says, well, what if they don't believe those signs? He says, oh, I'll harden Pharaoh's heart, don't worry. There'll be many more signs to come. The plagues that he dismantled Egyptians' worship system with, all of those were signs. I will confirm you as my prophet, I will confirm through these signs that I have sent you. So not only Moses in Scripture in the Old Testament received these miraculous credentials, Gideon, Eli, Saul, Isaiah, Daniel, and the list could go on. God constantly confirmed His people as His spokesmen through 
these miraculous signs. In the New Testament, the word sign is most often reserved for what we would translate as a miracle. For instance, in John 6.12, John writes this, A large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. In John 9, Jesus heals the man born blind. And then in verse 16, the Pharisees are arguing with him. Well, who did this to you? It was this guy. I don't know who he was. You know, you, you guys know the account. But here's what the verse 16 says. Some of the Pharisees said, this man's not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said this. How can a man who's a sinner do such signs? Most significantly, Jesus offered the most important miracle, His resurrection, as a sign to us. In Matthew 12, 39 and 40, here's what Jesus said. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of what? The prophet Jonah. Right? Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He literally called His resurrection a sign for a wicked generation to know He was who He claimed to be. So signs carried with it, most often, a theological significant message or credential to the one speaking that message. Wonders. In the Old Testament, this word is sometimes used interchangeably with the word sign. Sometimes it's used in a particular event. Uh, and then in another passage, it's called a sign. In this passage, it's called a wonder. So it's used interchangeably. Pharaoh, God said in Exodus 4.21, would see signs. Later on in, in chapter 11, verse 9, he called them wonders. The wonders multiplied in the land, as God said. Sometimes in the Old Testament, signs and wonders were used to describe the same event. In the New Testament, the word for wonder literally means miraculous sign, prodigy, or a wonder. And it carries with it the idea of something that causes you to be astonished or amazed. So this word's not focusing so much on the one speaking or doing the act. This word's focusing on the one viewing or listening to it. It's causing wonder, amazement, astonishment in him. It's used to describe Jesus' miracles very often. Stephen's miracles, for instance, let's go to Acts chapter 6, verse 8. Because here again in Acts chapter 6, with Stephen, all three of these words we're considering are once again used of what Stephen was doing. In verse 8, Acts chapter 6, Stephen full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. So he was filled with what? Power, same word dunamis, performing wonders and signs to the crowd, for the crowd. The apostles' miracles in Acts chapter 2, 14 and 15 are called wonders. So this word describes that aspect of miracles which causes astonishment in those observing it. And then, of course, the word power. As we noted, it simply means power, dunamis. In both Old and New Testament, it's used in connection with many different things, too many to list, but often when it's used in connection with God working, they are called works of power. 
So what is the purpose of these miracles? We've considered how it's used as a sign, as a wonders, acts of power. What's the purpose of miracle? And this will help clear up why this gift was given to the church. It does appear to be the case in Scripture that there was a definite purpose for miracles. In other words, God doesn't seem to just kind of willy-nilly do these kind of things. In fact, scripturally, uh, as far as what was recorded in, in scripturized, if that's a word, is that a word? Scripturized? You all know what I'm saying though, right? Okay. Thanks, Justin. It's definitely a word. Okay. That which was recorded in Scripture, there's really three great periods where God does miracles. First, with Moses and the whole Exodus event, a ton of miracles are happening. Later on, with the ministry of Elijah and Elisha, again, tons of miracles are happening. And then, the coming of the New Testament with Jesus and the apostles and the beginning of the new church. Now, that's not to say there weren't miracles done outside of those periods, but as far as through the men, those are the three great periods we see in Scripture where they're most concentrated. The purpose, once again, go back to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 is an important passage for us to consider with this question. The purpose of miracles... If I get there, Hebrews chapter 2, once again, let's read verse 3 and 4. So it, the message of salvation, was declared at first by the Lord. And it, the message of salvation, was attested to us by those who heard. Both the Lord and apostles are attesting to the gospel while God also bore witness to what? What's implied? Bore witness to the gospel by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit. So at least, at a very minimum, the purpose of miracles in the New Testament was to bear witness to the truth of the gospel. That's its purpose. There were other purposes that God demonstrated miracles in the Old Testament. You know the Exodus story. His purpose in demonstrating His power and His sovereignty over all the gods of Egypt. Single-handedly and one by one, what He began to do? Demolish their deities and show He is sovereign over everything they worship. Even over life itself. Same is true with ministry of Elijah and Elisha. Israel had become apostate and began worshiping who? The Baals. You remember Mount Carmel, 1 Kings 18, and, and Elijah's con, uh, contest with the prophets of Baal. Had him set up the altar, and he calls on them, hey, you guys go first. Drench that sacrifice with water over and over and over, and then call on your God to rain down fire and lick it all up. They did that, and they're hooting and hollering, cutting themselves thinking they're pleasing their God. They did it all day, and Elijah just kind of sat there and laughed. Even at one point, he mocks him, saying, hey, is your God on the toilet? That's literally what he says. Where is he at? Finally, Elijah steps up and says, God, show him your God. Boom! Licks it up. Demonstrating the sovereignty and power of God. Right? That's the purpose. So we see a definite purpose in miracles. We can summarize them in this way, in fact. Overall, the purpose of miracles seems to be this. One, to glorify God. It is always, at a very minimum, to establish who God is in the theater of God's 
is to exalt Him above any other. Can your God do such things? So it's to cause God to be um, to emerge out of this course of competing worldviews. Secondly, the purpose of miracles is to accredit or attest to certain persons as spokespeople. We saw that with the case of Moses. How will they know that you sent me? Here's how they'll know Moses. How did we know that Jesus was the Son of God? You remember Mark chapter 2 when the man's laid down in front of him and he heals him. Or he says first to the man, son, your sins are forgiven. And what are they thinking in their head? Only God can forgive sins alone. So what does Jesus do? He says, hey, I know what you're thinking. Only God can forgive sins. That's true. To show you I am him, I'll say to this man, get up and walk. And what did he say? Get up and walk. He went home. It attested to who Jesus was. Same is true for the apostles. It attested to who the apostles were as apostles of the living God who speak the way of truth. So secondly, we see that as a minimum purpose. Third, we see in Scripture, was to provide evidence for belief in God. Now, this is a, we need to understand this point because we also read in Scripture just a little bit ago that an evil and adulterous generation seeks for signs, right? Here's the difference. When evidence is provided, and the evidence happens to be a miracle, but the evidence is for faith in God, did Jesus ever refuse that? No. In fact, he, he said it's, it's a lesser form of faith. He rebuked Thomas, for instance, at the end of the Gospel of John. Hey, Thomas, don't be disbelieving, but believe. Remember, Thomas was the one who wanted to put his hands in, in Jesus' scars. I won't believe until I do that. Jesus shows up, tells Thomas, let me have your hand. Feel this. Don't be disbelieving, but believe. And then he says, do you really believe now that you've seen? Blessed are those who believe and have not seen. He didn't, he didn't condemn Thomas's faith, but he did pronounce a blessing on those who believe without seeing. But John actually says at the very end of his gospel in chapter 20, that the reason he recorded the things he did, all the signs he said, in fact, there are so many signs Jesus had done that if John were to have recorded all of them, all the books in the world couldn't have contained what Jesus did. But John recorded what he did so that we would what? Believe. So they are offered as proof and there's a right place. Now, if you're seeking the sign without seeking God, Jesus does condemn that. John chapter 6 is a good example. Jesus had just fed the 5,000 with two loaves of bread and five fish, whatever it was. The next morning, they're on the other side waiting for Jesus. He says, you're not seeking me because you believe I'm the Messiah. You're seeking me because you ate and your bellies are full and you want more. They were seeking the sign, not Jesus. And then He did no more for them. So those three things we see in Scripture glorifies who God is, it accredits the spokesperson of God, and it provides evidence for belief. Seems to be the purpose of what miracles were. Of course, not everyone who witnessed the miracles believed. Remember? Here's what Jesus said in John 12, 37. Though He had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in Him. Jesus said with the account of Lazarus, who's burning, right? And asked, hey, give me some water. It's burning down here. Let me go back to my brothers and warn them about it. And what was told to him? Even if the dead were raised, they wouldn't believe. 
So miracles didn't provide convincing proof for everyone, even though they were legitimate miracles. We see that often today. In fact, I've countered some atheists with this argument. Well, if God is existing, if He's real, why doesn't He show up and do something? I said, you don't know what you're asking. He has showed up, and there is evidence. We see His evidence of existence through the effects of what He's made. But what you're asking is that God, so if He's the builder of this building, right? we know that this building didn't build itself. It had to have had a builder. This isn't the result of wind and erosion. It's a result of intelligence, planning, and power. But what you're asking is that God, as the builder of the building, would literally implant Himself in the wall and say, Here I am! You don't know what you're asking when you say, well, God, just show up. It's evidence everywhere. He's shown up. And it's evident. Works of power surround us constantly. There's other examples of what the various types of miracles were. Answer to prayer from physical danger. Works of judgment on the enemies of the Gospel is one of them. Ananias and Sapphira within the church. There's deliverance from injury. Remember when Paul was bitten by the serpent at the end of Acts. He's not hurt. Displays of power over physical creation. Jesus walking on the water, rebuking the storm. Right? Types of miracles. Not only that, providing and intervening to meet special needs. For instance, in the, in the wilderness, providing quail and manna every day for what they need. There's all kinds of various types of works of power. To conclude with this gift, God gifted, at minimum, the apostles, as well as Stephen, Barnabas, Philip, with the effecting of miracles. Now, that's not to say that it's limited to that, but we know of those ones. Okay, I do want to put a note in at this point, before we move on to the gift of healing. Even for those who believe that these gifts have ceased, I want to... I want to argue for them on this point. (laughs) What they're not saying is that God has ceased to do miracles. They believe God does miracles every day. What they're saying is that He ceased to gift people in this way. And that's a good distinction. It's a fair distinction. Um, So I want to say that at this point before we leave. We know, though, however, that God blessed the early church at a minimum with people with this gift, the effecting of various types of miracles. They were prominent. And it does make sense that with the establishing of the church and the establishing of the truth, that this would accompany those who were doing the foundational work. I get that. Let's look at the next gift, though, that Paul mentions. Various types of healing. Now, there is crossover, as I said, with this gift and the gift of, or gift of miracles and gift of healing. A healing is a miracle, but not all miracles were healings. And that's why it's separated out. Sickness and disease in man, I think the church would universally agree, are a result of the fall. It is part of the miserable condition that man finds himself in as a result of the curse. Okay? We agree on this in the church. We would also agree universally, I think, that Christ purchased for us freedom both from spiritual maladies as well as physical maladies. Christ purchased that for us. 
The question that's debated, though, is when the realization of that will be ours. Whether that's ours now, which is where kind of the charismatic camp falls, or if that will be ours, freedom from disease and sickness in heaven, which is kind of where Protestant evangelicalism falls. And then there's the in-between, which I find myself in. (laughs) The in-between. Here's the main distinction with healing. Import everything I just said about miracles. It's true about healing. But what, why healing is, is a distinct gift is one point, I think. It speaks to the mercy of God. Miracles display God's power. A healing displays God's power. But healing is God's special concern for your misery. So it definitely highlights His mercy and love in ways that just any other miracle doesn't necessarily highlight. In other words, it brings the power of God to a very personal level. God would stoop to the lowest of the low, to those suffering, and meet them in power. What love and mercy and grace this gift communicated over and over and over. I love it. I love looking at this point. There's an example, and you could go to so many, but Luke 18, 35-43 is a great example. There's the blind beggar who's been blind for we don't know how long, but he's sitting on the road blind, and he hears a crowd, and, and he hears, hey, Jesus is in that crowd, and apparently this blind beggar had some kind of knowledge of who Jesus was, because the minute he heard Jesus is passing by, we're told he begins crying out with all of his might, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. That's what he's asking for. Have mercy. And you remember what the crowd started to do? Shut up. Be quiet. But what Jesus did was just the opposite. Hey, who said that? Bring him here. And then Jesus asked him. He keeps crying out, have mercy on me, have mercy on him. Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight. You see that and many others highlight what that man wanted was mercy. And as he called out for mercy, God granted mercy in the form of receiving his sight. I believe uh, this wasn't the gift of healing, but I believe God supernaturally answered your all's prayer for me two, three weeks ago when I had the flu. I told you I was suffering with the flu. Our whole family had the flu. I asked the men's group to start praying for us at 9 o'clock. You, you all texted me back, hey, we're praying for you. That very hour, the flu and the fever left me. <laughs> I think it was God's answer to prayer. Why? Because that was Saturday morning. Bo was out of country, I think. Uh, it's too late to tell Dwayne, hey man, cover for me. I was doing worship too, I think. You guys are asking. So, God, I had to be there. So what did God do? In His mercy, He answered your prayer. Fever broke. It's good enough to do it. So, I want to establish this so a little bit. Um, we might go a little past our time, but bear with me. This is so good. 
In Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1 and 2, we're told that the coming Messiah would be tasked with certain ministries. Here's what Isaiah 61 says. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then in Psalm 146, 7 and 8, God says, says this of God. He executes justice for the oppressed. He gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. He watches over the sojourner and He upholds the widow and the fatherless. Now what we tend to do is we tend to spiritualize those passages and we, we allegorize them to mean, oh, that's all spiritual. Maybe. But maybe it is physical too. Maybe when it says the Lord opens the eyes of the blind, it means He literally opens the eyes of the blind. We see Him doing that in the Gospels. So we see this care, this mercy ministry of God of the coming Messiah would bring with Him. And then we find in the Gospels Jesus quoting these together. In me, this mercy ministry is being fulfilled. In Luke chapter 4, here's what Jesus gets up in His hometown synagogue and reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He quotes those passages. What's Jesus doing? This mercy ministry of the coming Messiah is being fulfilled in your hearing right now. I'm here. When John the Baptist's disciples came to see if Jesus was the one, here's what Jesus responded with in Matthew 11, 4-6. Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the poor have good news preached to them. All mercy acts, right? Deafness. Leprosy. Death. Blindness. All miserable conditions man contends with that God met. So God heals many out of His compassion and mercy, even if those healed never came back to thank Him. He still had compassion on them. He still had mercy on them. On some, the Lord did not immediately heal them, but He waited so that through their endurance, they would come to know His compassion and mercy in greater degrees. That's the case for Job, in fact. Here's what James says about Job. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast You've heard of the steadfastness of Job and you've seen the purpose of the Lord. How the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Why did God let Job suffer for so long? Because His purpose was to show Himself merciful. I want to end with these points. And this question really. Well, what about the issue of faith and unbelief and God's sovereign wisdom and choice in giving power to heal? I want to make a statement in Scripture that's true. With God, all things are possible. Would you all agree with that? Absolutely. With God, all things are possible. But does that mean that all things will be actual? No. I want to break this down for you. Sometimes God chooses not to heal you because there's a better purpose for us or need for us. This was the case with the Apostle Paul. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul had a thorn in the flesh. It was some physical affliction. And Paul prayed three times for the Lord to take it away. And would God answer him? No. Why? What was God's purpose? Paul needed to learn two essential truths. My power is perfected in weakness and my grace is sufficient for you, Paul. 
That's the great Apostle Paul. And God said, I'm not going to heal you in this. You need to learn the sufficiency of my grace. So he said, lesson learned. Now I boast in my weaknesses (laughs) because the power of God's perfected in me then. Praise God he didn't answer that prayer for healing. I want to know his grace. Sometimes God chooses to delay healing, as we just said was the case with Job. There's another example in Acts, the book of Acts chapter 3. The apostle Peter heals a lame beggar. You remember that? Starts a revival in Jerusalem after Pentecost. But it says this in that text. It says that that man had been brought to the temple every day of his life. He'd been born that way, and he'd been brought all of his life to the temple area and asked and begged for alms. Do you realize that Jesus must have passed that man over and over and over and over and over and over and over in his lifetime and never healed him? Why? Because his purpose was that the apostle Peter and John would heal him and start a revival in the Acts book of Acts. He waited. Jesus could have healed him, but he didn't. He had a different purpose at a different time. Sometimes God uses the naturally ordained means of creation to heal, such as the body's own ability. We see that often. Is it any less a healing? No. Does it have the supernatural element? No. But it is still healing. God has made our bodies incredibly well, incredibly complex and beautiful, so that it can heal itself. That's His providential way of doing it. And that's good. You still give credit and glory to God for being so wise in the use of medicine, doctors, and our own body's ability. Sometimes it may have been God's desire to heal and have mercy, yet there wasn't found faith in any. Sometimes it is God's desire to heal people, but faith is always the requirement. Mark 6, 1-5. Jesus goes to his hometown, reads that account uh, we read earlier. They want to stone him, throw him off the cliff. And here's what verse 5 says. He could do no mighty work there except laying his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. So faith is a condition. But even if you have faith, it might not match up with God's purpose. As was the case with Paul. Do you think Paul had faith that God could heal him? Absolutely, Paul. The hands of Paul, thousands were healed. Paul had faith, but it wasn't God's purpose. But here's the biggest one I want to end with. In God's mercy, sometimes He will heal us of bodily afflictions. However... Sometimes it is His mercy not to heal us because it will be by the means of suffering that He perfects us and produces more fruit in us. Now here's the, here's the counterbalance we need with this gift of healing. A biblical doctrine of suffering. Now I want to say that again. To understand the gift of healing, you have to understand God's purpose and doctrine of suffering. If you're still in the book of Hebrews, go to chapter 5 with me real quick. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7 through 9. Speaking of Jesus, it says this, In the days of His flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to Him who was able to save Him from death. And He was heard because of His reverence. 
Although he was a son, now underline this, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And let me ask you a question, church. If our very Lord himself was perfected through the walking the road of suffering, do you think God will spare you from that? No. The moment you begin to suffer, if your only desire is to be delivered from suffering, the greater point you need to learn is not that God can heal you. The greater point you need to learn is that your own sanctification will happen as you learn suffering. And it would actually hinder that for God to heal you. We learn obedience through the things we suffer. For God to spare us from that all the time would hinder our growth, would hinder His purpose. He spared not His Son suffering we have become partakers of the same thing. So, we can expect to graduate from the same school as our Lord, the school of suffering, and learn obedience through the same means. Suffering is, in other words, sometimes God's chosen way to sanctify you. All those points need to be considered as we look at that gift of healing. Miracles and healing, remember, The question of whether they're still existing today, we'll get to. But does God heal and does God still do miraculous things? Yes. The question is, does He gift people anymore with those? We'll get to that in a couple weeks. Let me call the worship team back up. And I want to close this in a word of prayer. Father God, we we see so many examples, Lord. It's hard to leave so many examples out. But for time's sake, Lord, we gave just a few. But You are a God of miracles. You are a God who cares for us. And in Your mercy, there are times You do touch our bodies and heal us. In fact, it's been the testimony of countless thousands where they see Your hand involved in answers to prayer. Father, sometimes in Your wisdom You choose not to because there's a deeper truth we must learn as Paul had to learn. We have to learn our, that Your grace is sufficient for our weakness. And for You to just simply deliver us out of every affliction would prohibit that great, grand, freeing truth from being learned. But Father, when we grasp that truth, that Your grace is sufficient for every obstacle, every disease, every affliction, every temptation, whatever it is we might face, that we learn Your grace is sufficient for us, then we are truly free indeed, healed or not. We have found the truth. And that we thank You for. In Your wisdom, You do all things well. Your care and concern is always for us. Even when our concern is for something that's not necessarily a concern for Yours, You don't deviate. You know what's best for us. Because You are a good, loving Father who cares for us. May we learn to entrust our souls to You, whether healed or not, whether seeing miraculous things or not, Father, may we all come to experience the greatest miracle of all, the new birth. And we could say and sing with John Newton, I once was dead. I'm alive in Christ. I once was blind, but now I see the truth of God. My mind was deceived with all these lies and deceptions, and you've cleared that clutter out. You've swept out the cobwebs and you've brought light so that I might see Your glory, Your grace, and Your provision in Your Son. Father, may that miracle happen over and over and over. The new birth of a dead soul.
we pray in Christ's name. Amen.